Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the Polmaps Middle East Politics Podcast. Uh, we're here today with Walter Armbrust, a professor at University of Oxford, St. Anthony's College. Uh, Walter, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So you've been doing really interesting work for quite a while now on, uh, on the Egyptian media, popular culture, and really pioneering ways of understanding uh, Egyptian politics and society through the media. Um, and so tell us a little bit about what you've been working on lately in terms of uh, Egypt and uh, kind of how we should be understanding uh, its popular culture since the revolution. Okay, uh, I just finished the manuscript for a book on the revolution. I know there are already lots of books out there, uh, but I think this one will be quite a bit different than the ones that have already been published. Um, the provisional title of it is After Utopia, the Egyptian Revolution as Liminal Crisis, and it's essentially an ethnography of the revolution. There is a lot of uh, media content in it as well, but I was in Egypt during the revolution throughout all of 2011 and most of 2012. I was there on research leave. I was supposed to be doing something else on history of mass media in Egypt, but not very much of that project got done because the revolution was pretty much in my face. I mean, I was living in downtown <laughs> Cairo, and I couldn't really escape it, and it seemed more or less irresponsible to try and ignore it and sit there reading 1950s magazines with the revolution going on. Life does happen to research. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and so it's an ethnography. It uh, it it it's a, it works through concepts that had been unfashionable in anthropology for quite a while. Um, the ritual process by Victor Turner, uh, which was written in the 1970s and had been uh, very popular in anthropology in the 70s and 80s, and then fell out of favor for various reasons. Uh, although I think primarily through erroneous readings of what Turner was all about. He was really an anthropologist who was inter interested in liminality, whereas he was interpreted as somebody who was more interested in the, um, the, the kind of stable states, which, which he wasn't really. There's various ways that you can um, think about what normativity means, um, and you can kind of plug those into Turner's conception of the, of, of the structured states, but what he was really interested in was the periods when things became radically unstructured. Um, and he's recently been making a comeback. There are political theorists uh, in Europe and other places who have been rethinking Turner, and particularly with regard to his potential usefulness for thinking about politics. And he actually is brilliant for um, writing about revolution. I mean, I was sitting there during the revolution in 2011 sort of thinking, why isn't anybody talking about communitas and and the ritual process, and then all of a sudden a journal sent me something to review by him, <laughs> and it was like a eureka moment, and, and since then I've been um, essentially running with this. And so what does that mean in terms of your experience of living in a revolution and trying to see how Egyptians were making sense of what they were going through? Well, as, as probably everybody knows, the first 18 days of the revolution when the Mubarak regime was overthrown was a period of great euphoria. And I'm sure that many anthropologists were thinking of Turner at that moment because this concept that Turner had of communitas is people, when people go through rituals, they leave normative space and they enter into this period of liminality. And the initial sensation is one of everybody being bonded together and uh, of general euphoria. So those 18 days were a fairly standard moment in that kind of transitional moment. In the ritual process, then yes, this is this is exactly what you should expect. But 
Ritual is a name that we give for dealing with social transitions that we know will happen. Um, Rites of Passage, for example, which was the original context in which ritual was written about in this way by Arnold and Genep in the early 20th century, then revised by Turner and, and currently sort of refashioned mm -hmm. for political analysis more recently. Um, and the thing is, there are transitions we go through that aren't expected, and the ritual process still helps us to understand what's happening, but in, in, in this particular case, there's no way to leave the state of liminality. And so what happens during, uh, during this kind of unclosable period of liminality is that the initial period of euphoria then um, transforms into a, a state of everybody choosing sides and reckoning power. Which, you know, if you think of what happened in the revolution, and actually it's, it actually explains many revolutions, it's what happens. Um, revolutions often end up with unintended consequences. That was certainly the case in the Egyptian revolution, but it's actually very common in revolutions. And Turner kind of really it helps you think about it. And, and the thing that I like about Turner is that it allows you to bring in all kinds of cultural matters, including mass media, that don't fit very well into um, kind of more narrowly political analyses that focus on contentious politics and this sort of thing. You can really widen the scope of your analysis to include all kinds of things that are more difficult to bring into a, a kind of contentious politics analysis of the revolution. So, so what, what are some of the, uh, the kinds of cultural figures who appear on the political scene in that transitional or liminal moment who, for you, kind of define that experience? I, I remember you wrote uh, a really wonderful piece for us uh, last uh, earlier this year uh, about Tofiko Kasha, the, the talk show host, and how he was able to capture a certain sentiment. I mean, so what, what kinds of figures did you see really emerging in this, uh, in this moment? Well, Okasha was my favorite. He's my favorite chapter in the book. I mean, I, I published an article on Okasha and Comparative Studies in Society and History, and uh, um, that was translated into Arabic and became a huge hit. Did Okasha in, like it? In Cairo. Well, Okasha used it. He, he used my article to try and um, to, to try and legitimate himself. Um, I, I mean, just to explain, he's a talk show host, and he had been a minor functionary of the NDP before the revolution. And during the revolution, he became fairly clearly an operative of military intelligence, uh, particularly during these early years of the revolution. He was talking about stuff in 2011 that Sisi was talking about, you know, two years later in 2013. Once he um, once he took power, but Okasha is exactly what you would expect of a trickster. I mean, he fits. He ticks all of the boxes. I mean, he's a ridiculous character. People laughed at him initially, and and failed to notice that he actually was quite effective. I mean, he was gathering a following throughout 2011. I mean, I first encountered him at a counter-revolution demonstration that I went to in Abbasia Square, uh, which is. Uh, a few kilometers from Tahrir Square, um, I was, I'm sure I was the only foreign observer there, everybody else ignored it. The press covered it a little bit, but mainly just to confirm this notion that Okasha was a loser, um, and that, you know, only a few hundred people showed up to his rally, whereas thousands of people showed up to the, to the mm -hmm. revolutionary demonstration that was happening at the same time in Tahrir Square. But uh, if, you, if you sort of fast forward from that moment, I mean, it was actually Okasha's rally that uh, told you much more about 
the trajectory of Egyptian politics. So what were some of the sort of things that he was saying? What, 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 was he, what kind of frame was he trying to place on these events? Paranoia, conspiracy theory, but also uh, extreme devotion to the military, to the security forces, and to the judicial system, um, all of which became themes of the counter-revolution when it became more obvious to more people in the, in the months after that and the years after that and going on into the period when, when the coup happened and Sisi took power. Um, and it would be crazy stuff. I mean, he'd be talking about these, these conspiracy theories that would involve just ridiculous coalitions of, you know, Masons and Jews and NATO and Hezbollah and Hamas and all of them working together to overthrow Egypt. And he didn't really have to explain why people would want to overthrow Egypt. It was just obvious and it was implied that, of course, anybody would want to overthrow Egypt because it's the center of the world. And mm-hmm. and, it, and it worked. It was, I mean, essentially, it, it attracted more and more people as the months went by. By the time he got to the election of Mohamed Morsi, um, running against Shafiq, then Orkasha had become the face of the counter-revolution. I mean, the huge demonstrations were happening against Morsi at the point of the election when they finally announced the results, and they were they were attributed to Orkasha. I mean, of course, I'm sure that the, the these events were organized by much wider coalitions of counter-revolutionary forces, but the name and the face that the public was putting on them at that particular moment was Okasha. It was Okasha's revolution. He had, had he had managed to insert himself into politics in a way that just seemed completely impossible in <clears throat> in 2011 when he first began to be prominent. That's really interesting. The um, I wanted to switch gears uh, just a little bit because one of the things that you've, you've been working on for a long time that I've always found fascinating is the portrayal of Islamists in Egyptian cinema and uh, most recently in Egyptian uh, television drama. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about uh, some of the some of the your favorite examples of this, of the way Islam and Islamist movements have been portrayed, um, you know, in these cultural these, these cultural moments. Well, if we're talking about mainstream TV that's broadcast both on terrestrial satellite stations as well as on satellite stations, prior to the revolution, there was no such thing as. Islamist TV production. Islamists had many other channels into media. They they flourished in an environment of decentralized media, but in terms of the more centralized broadcast media, they were completely shut out. And so, most of most of the TV and TV shows and films that were made that um, that commented on the phenomenon of political Islam were pretty much flat out opposed to it. Um, and and. I mean, the, 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 the Ur text for this particular genre is a film that came out in 1994 called The Terrorist. Oddly Man. And it was an Oddly Man film. Oddly Man became uh, very prominent in anti-Islamist uh, sort of mainstream official media. He, he had been uh, the most prominent comedian prior to that, but he became less of a comedian and more of a of a of a kind of dramatic figure who would kind of spearhead this anti-Islamist media wave that started in the 1990s. And when I say wave, I mean it should be understood not as the major preoccupation of Egyptian cinema or television. In fact, one of the striking things is that prior to 1994, there was nothing. Mm-hmm. There was a deafening silence uh, in the cinema 
and and in and and, and when I say TV, I mean narrative fictional TV. I'm talking namely about Muselsels. Um, of course, TV is more complicated than that. There are other there are other ways that TV, mm -hmm. of course, did address Islam, um, although not necessarily so much Islamism. But there certainly were you know kind of official alternatives to Islamist discourse that were broadcast on state media and on satellite TV. But what I have uh, focused on most of the time is uh, the, the narrative fictional portrayals of Islamists. Um, and there, but there has been some evolution. Uh, you know, the, the, the terrorist was pretty much a completely negative portrayal of Islamists. It was a kind of propaganda film. Um, since then, they, they have become more diverse and a bit more subtle. I mean, the last thing that I've written about, which I'm uh, presenting a paper about here, and, and which I published about uh, elsewhere already, uh, is a TV show called Adaya, which you can translate as The Preacher, although it's not a preacher in the sense of somebody who's trained in mm -hmm. religion, but uh, there are many figures in uh, the Arab world who uh, don't have formal religious training but have become kind of specialists in Islamic outreach and, mm -hmm. and preaching to try and um, satisfy the, uh, actually in some ways to satisfy a demand for greater piety and for people to know more about their religion that they're not necessarily getting from the top of the religious hierarchy, but that they can get from these kind of intermediate figures who, many of whom have become uh, big on television and other less centralized uh, forms of media. And Adalia is, a, is essentially a portrayal of what some people have called the new preachers, uh, which are modern-looking preachers who uh, preach very differently to their followers than the official preachers who have been featured on state TV. I mean, the, the, you know, the model of an official preacher on state TV was somebody who was dressed like an Azharite sheikh, who would usually be preaching in a mosque, and usually be preaching to a group of fairly down-at-the-heels-looking middle-to-lower middle-class men. Um, and you can see a kind of clear a kind of visualization of an authority structure in those kinds mm -hmm. of preachings, whereas the new preachers uh, would, would be young, um, they would wear business suits, they would preach to mixed audiences of young men and women who were obviously well off, and the message tended to be more about success and the love of God rather than trying to inculcate the fear of God for, you know, for people who may not be practicing religion correctly according to the dictates of um, various mm -hmm. interpretations of Islam. And so Adai is about one of these guys, and it's all about the business of preaching, and, and it clearly portrays it as a big business, and you know, the main character is this paradoxical figure who is, a, on one hand, uh, a beautiful man, played by an actor named Hani Salama, um, and, and he's attractive to women, um, and he's young and modern and successful looking, but at the same time, the stuff that he's preaching is extremely reactionary and extremely conservative, and so you've got this, this paradox of the conservative message coming out of the mm -hmm. mouth of a very modern-looking character. And the Moselso is basically about he become, how he becomes humanized over the course of 30 episodes. Isn't that basically the same narrative structure as Al-Arhabi, as the terrorist, where, where the Adel Imam figure falls in love with a bourgeois woman and it abandons is. his... It, it is, it is his, very much similar to the terrorist in that sense. However, I think it goes further in suggesting you know, kind of alternatives that ways people can actually be um, concerned with piety and still be modern subjects of, of, of Egypt. Um, and so you can see some evolution. I think still there are 
there's a kind of glass ceiling which this Moselsul doesn't mm -hmm. break through. I mean, it is still Islamism from the perspective of non-Islamists very much. I mean, it's so not we, being produced by people who, you know, sort of really buy into... Islamism. So in those two years between the revolution and the coup, were there any portrayals of Islamism in Egyptian popular culture which were more sympathetic or which tried to understand or present Islamists on their own terms? Or did Egyptian mainstream culture remain essentially dominated by the same you know, non-Islamist uh, frames and ideologies? It did stay pretty much in the hands of the same people who were producing this kind of television production um, before the revolution. I mean, there's a big industry of producing Moselsos, this kind of fictional narrative form that is the most popular dramatic form on, on television. Um, and one suspects that if the Muslim Brotherhood had remained in power longer, then eventually there may have you may have seen some change in this situation. There may have been narrative productions that were produced from that political position, but it was just too fast. I mean, Morsi mm -hmm. was in power for one year, and the, and the two years before that, none of the kind of media industries really changed very much. The only thing that was different was that there was an official, well, there are actually more than one official Muslim Brotherhood uh, TV channels, and, but they broadcast talk shows and news and, um, and, and, and various religious programming, but they didn't attempt, at least not that quickly, to move into this narrative TV genre, which had such a it was such a huge industry and had such a long history, they've been producing these things since the 1960s, and it, you know it would it would have taken time for Islamists to penetrate that world. I think. All right. Well, thanks. So we've been speaking with with uh, Walter Armbrust at the University of Oxford St. Anthony's College. Uh, Walter, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.